You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. Join us now for Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, my dear friends, and welcome to another edition of Bishop Sheen Presents here on Radio Maria Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. When I think of great voices, I think of Bishop Sheen. And it was his voice that touched the hearts of millions of souls through his radio addresses and his television programs. And we'd like to share a few of those reflections with you today. So I would invite you to sit back and relax and enjoy the wit and the wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's program where Archbishop Sheen will again enlighten our minds and hopefully strengthen our wills. And, you know, we all need help with so many areas in our life. And I know for some, it's uh, overcoming selfishness. And so uh, Archbishop Sheen gave a beautiful reflection many years ago about how to cure selfishness. And so we'll listen to his wisdom today. And, uh, you know, we need more prayer. We need uh, to pray our rosaries. We need to participate in a few more holy hours. And so Archbishop Sheen will give us some words of encouragement about watching with the Lord for one hour. And so uh, hopefully this will uh, be just what the doctor ordered today. So I'd ask you to sit back and relax now and enjoy Sheen's wisdom about the cure for selfishness. God love you. Friends, this really and truly happened in Philadelphia. A brother and a sister were discussing the various steps and orders that one took up to the priesthood. And they had mentioned subdeaconship, deaconship, priesthood, and then one becomes a bishop. And then the sister said to the brother, and what comes after the bishop? At this point, the mother awoke and said, Milton Burrow. <laughs> I want to remind the mother that she already missed a half hour. <laughs> My little angel was talking to a psychiatrist after one of the telecasts on juvenile delinquency, and the psychiatrist was explaining the best thing in order to get a child to do something is to switch his attention. My angel said, switch what? <laughs> Everything in the American home, you know, is controlled by a switch except children. There is nothing that develops character as much as a pat on the back, provided it is given often enough, hard enough, and low enough. <laughs> we were to say something. I was looking to see where the lights were. Do you mind turning this, this red, red light around here so I can see it? That's right. Thank you very much. <laughs> 
I get so nervous when I can't see these lights. <laughs> oh, yes, we were to say something tonight about selfishness. I'm sure that you've noticed, for example, that a child has no lag between its demands and its satisfaction. That is why a child cries so readily. Now, very often, people never get out of this state of being an infant. And just as soon as they have a craving for something, they want it immediately satisfied. Take, for example, how often a man says he wants a cigarette, and he wants it then. He cannot defer it. The only time he will put off not having a cigarette possibly is when the lighter doesn't work. The spirit is willing, but the flash is weak. <laughs> Wouldn't it be a wonderful idea if these people... For example, would now and then just deny themselves one cigarette, which is about a penny, and send it to me. I could give it to the lepers. One cigarette a day. I'll take pennies any time. And then there is, of course, also the vanity. You, you heard about the girl, didn't you, who got an engagement ring, and she wasn't sure that anybody noticed it? And finally she said, My, it's hot in here. I think I'll have to take off my ring. <laughs> Then there is the, the boasting. Is it true? I do not know. But it is said that people from Texas boast a great deal. Well, they have a good reason to boast. But it seems as if this particular Texan was talking to someone from Boston. And he was speaking about the siege of the Alamo. And he says, just think of it. He says, one man, one man alone stood off invading armies. And the man from Boston said, well, have you ever heard of Paul Revere? The Texan says, isn't he the man that ran for help? There's no need of talking about selfishness We're all familiar with it And the fact that there is a philosophy That is a little too dominant Namely that we are here only to have pleasure And that pleasure is happiness And that we should never deny ourselves And that self-control is a philosophy that is passé as a matter of fact, there's another philosophy, and that philosophy is first the fast and then the feast. You see, that's opposed to the philosophy I've been describing, first the feast and then the hangover. <laughs> the hangover is the moaning after the night before. A day almost passed before you got that one. <laughs> In addition to this philosophy of being other-possessed, there is the philosophy of self-possession. Many people are other-possessed. They may be possessed by some passion, may be possessed, for example, by alcoholism or some evil habit. That means that just as soon as the stimulus is presented, they immediately succumb. Now, there was another philosophy, which is the philosophy of self-possession, in which one is captain and master of his own fate and destiny. And personality is so centered, so controlled, that one is able to stand off this invading army. And just as a man is more free when he's able to control his actions, so, too, he's more free when he's not possessed by these things that are outside of him. 
Now, this other philosophy, being self-possessed, which is conditioned upon self-control, was very well described to us on the occasion of the visit of Greeks to our blessed Lord. The Greeks were proud people. They had a right to be proud. After all, they had given the world one of the great civilizations. But they were a people that, while not completely devoted to this philosophy of self-expression and license, nevertheless believed that love should never reach a point where it becomes lost. Their philosophy was out of the golden mean. No great extreme. And these Greeks came to our blessed Lord, but not directly. They came, first of all, to one of the apostles, Philip. He had a Greek name. It means lover of horses. And then Philip went to Andrew, who had a Greek name, that met Manly. Wasn't it interesting that the Greeks found the only two apostles that had Greek names? Oh, you know, somebody was telling me before the show that she was worried to death whenever I walked backwards as I might trip. See? And so they came, they came to Philip and Andrew and asked to see our blessed Lord. Now, what did they want from our Lord? They said they wanted to see Jesus. We do not know what they wanted. But I think we can guess. And I'm just guessing. I believe the Greeks said this. We notice that enemies are multiplied. We foresee that you are going to die. It is a pity that a great teacher like you should die. Why not come with us to Athens? Athens, the city of the sages, the city of the wise men. We have killed only one of our great teachers, and we have regretted it ever since. We gave the hemlock juice to our wise Socrates, and our hearts have been ashamed of it since that day. But if you come with us, Maybe you can found a state such as thrived with Solon, with this great wisdom that we have heard. Possibly you can you can found a school of peripatetics such as Aristotle and Plato had. Maybe you can revive the Greek drama, once more produce some of the dramatic wisdom that came from the mouth of an Aeschylus and a Sophocles. In any case, do not die. Live. Come with us and teach. That is what the Greeks might have said. Now, the reason we say they might have said that is because of the answer of our Lord. He said, unless the seed falling to the ground die... It remaineth alone. But if it dies, 
it bringeth forth much fruit. If anyone would save his life, he must lose it. In other words, our Lord was saying to the Greek, you do not want me to stay here. You want me to save my life. I tell you that there are two things you can do with seed. You can consume it or you can plant it. If you consume it, it gives you momentary pleasure. If you plant it, it suffers, it's crucified, it is buried in the earth. But it multiplies unto new life. Let me tell you that I have already called myself the seed. I have come into this world not to live. I have come in it to die. Death was a stumbling block to your Socrates. It interrupted his teachings. But death is the goal of my life. It is the gold that I am seeking. I am the only one who ever lived a life backward. I have come to die like that seed. And just as you have admiration for a man who might willingly surrender his life in order to save a fellow man from drowning, so I have come here to die in order to save humanity. I am not just a man. I am a God as well as a man. I am not a teacher. That is why you invite me to Athens, to teach. I am primarily a savior, a redeemer. You have heard possibly my Sermon on the Mount. And you boast that you would like to have wisdom like that preached again in Athens. Do you not know that there is a close and intimate relationship between the Mount of the Beatitudes and the Mount of Calvary? Do you not know that anyone who would preach in a Freudian world, blessed are the pure of heart, will see death? Do you not know that anyone in an atomic world who preaches blessed are the meek will be put to death? Do you not know that in a world of pleasure, he who says, Blessed are those who mourn, no longer live. I have come to die, but no one takes my life away from me. I lay it down of myself. And let me tell you, Greeks, boast not that you would save my life. Because within twelve months, there will be inscribed over a gibbet on which I will be nailed the sentence of my death in Greek. This was a new philosophy. The philosophy doing something with the ego, mortify it, discipline it, make perish the things that were evil in order that the good might come forth. Is not that the law of life? After all, 
There are two laws in every single person, two laws of gravitation. Because we have a spirit, I believe that we have also within us a gravitation that pulls us upward, not downward. And so, one law of gravitation pulls us up the hill. It's rather difficult. And the other law of gravitation, we're all very familiar with it, is the downhill. Oh, that's a man, I forgot. All we have to do is simply let go. And we have therefore to discipline ourselves to die to that which is faith, because not every instinct that we have is good and right. Some of our instincts go to excesses. For example, in possessing things, in carnality, and in pride, and in turning freedom into license. And because they do this, they all have to be disciplined. And that is not easy. Does not all nature suggest this? Just suppose that a violin string were made conscious. And when the violinist picked up the string, the violin, he began to tighten the strings. If that string were conscious, it would say, Do not do this to me. This pains me. Can you not see that I am shrieking with pain? The violinist would say, suffer it, just for a moment. You were created to produce a melody. And die to your relaxation for just a second, and you will produce a beautiful melody. So it is with a sculptor. If the block of marble were conscious, certainly, block of marble would protest against the hammer and the chisel. But the sculptor knows that inside, as Michelangelo said, inside of every block of marble is an image. And to bring it out requires control and discipline, mortification. And in vain would one bring out the image without the cutting. And in vain also would one produce from within oneself the image of that which is divine without some mortification and pain. Look at the earth during the autumn time. It's filled with rotted leaves and with decaying branches and roots and the excretes of animals. This is death, and yet... It all goes to produce what is known as the humus, the life-giving property of the soil. And out of that death, there begins to come life. New leaves, new roots, new stems, and the nourishment of animals. This is the law of life which the world seems to have forgotten. And you know what is happening in the world. I mentioned once 
in another connection. I think I'm speaking of love, that there was a great divorce. So, too, there's a divorce in our modern world. This is the Western world, and this is the communist world. The Western world today wants a Christ without a cross. Communism, a cross without Christ. Now let us explain. The Western world wants a Christ without a cross, in a sense that it does not want mortification, self-discipline. It does not want to hear of these things. That is one of the reasons why there's juvenile delinquency. Carry self-expression to such an extreme that it means license. We do not want a Christ in our Western world whose hands are scarred. We want a lily-white hand. And the result is that we have a Christ who does not preach sacrifice and discipline, a feminine Christ, a weak Christ, full of cheap moralizations. George Bernard Shaw once said, the cross bars the way. Certainly it bars the way to selfishness and degradation and decay. And so the Western world has fallen away. The cross, because it would have him only a teacher, no wonder then, in speaking of him, talks of him only as a teacher. No wonder they equate him then with Buddha or Confucius or anyone else. If he's just a teacher, forgetting that he came primarily to die as a savior and to teach us how to be self-possessed, how to be men, how to resist the thing that drags us down even to the beast. Just as soon as you try to get a Christ without a cross, try to please everyone, then you have a sentimental, a romanticized Christ, which will no longer have the man who can do anything for you and defeat because he's risen as the Son of God. And because our Western world has done this, communism has come along because we've abandoned the cross, and communism has picked it up. And so communism is preaching throughout the world, self-discipline, self-control, make all kinds of sacrifices for the cause of communism. So long as there is the cross with love, there is sacrifice. But just as you take Christ without the cross and you turn Christ into something feminine and sentimental, so once when you take the cross without Christ, you have not sacrifice, you have violence, hate, tyranny, Siberia, brainwashings, Fifth columns, betrayals of nations, everything that's base and wicked in communism. They have taken this cross, and they've inspired men with it. As one captain of a communist army said to one of our missionaries in China, said, I have not eaten yet. It's five o'clock in the afternoon, and I refuse to eat the people's rice until I have done the people's work. You imagine one of our government workers not eating until five o'clock in the afternoon because he had not satisfied what he believed was justice to his government. And thus what we have dropped, they have taken up. So the problem of the world is, is our Western world going to restore a bit of sacrifice and discipline into the home, into education, into children, into our own lives? Or are the communists going to find the Christ for their cross.
We are all fearing a war at the present time. But the one way to prevent a war is to make a war. Not a war against our enemies, but a war against ourselves. To unsheath the sword and unsheath it, not against the enemy in hate, but to unsheath it against ourselves and all that is base and vile. For it is well to remember that God hates peace in those who are destined for war. And so are we all. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program. Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, my dear Radio Maria family, and thank you for joining me for this hour of reflection from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. I hope you enjoyed that presentation on the cure for selfishness, and um, I know it's something that we need to work on every day. And uh, I think of how Archbishop Sheen uh, put us to rest in the sense of he calmed many storms. Um, Again, his words of encouragement each week, he would just uh, somehow take the edge off. Uh, Yes, the world has gone crazy. I will, um, you know, tell you that. And I think you may be nodding your head. Uh, We all agree. But yet there is a calm that can um, just come into our lives. And it comes through knowing that God is with us. And uh, speaking of God being with us, I think of how many of us have been blessed to spend an hour with the Lord each day during a holy hour. Uh, There are a number of churches that have uh, been open now for a little while to receive uh, many adorers. And so, again, that holy habit of praying a holy hour is so important. So Archbishop Sheen will now give us a reflection simply entitled, Watching One Hour with Him. Please enjoy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, when you sent your Son to this world, and he entered into the sublime conflict with evil, he made only one request to priests to fight that evil. Send that spirit to us that we may know what he asked and that we may have the power to do it. We ask this through the passion and death of thy son. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Why is it that we priests never carry away from retreat the same benefits that dentists bring from their conventions and that medical doctors carry away from theirs? If the dentists, for example, hear of the value of a new kind of water drill, they immediately install it. If the doctors learn there is such a thing as electroanesthesiology, 
and the use of electricity instead of ether for producing unconsciousness, they immediately use it. You have made retreats for three years, ten, twenty, thirty, forty, or more. Can any of you remember a single resolution that you took during a retreat which you have kept? Or do we just simply attend a retreat, like we might attend a series of lectures on health? Health is good, we are agreed about that, but we do nothing specific. It becomes very important, therefore, to get down to basics and to carry away something that we will do the rest of our lives as a result of this retreat. The reason is, you see, when we're young we have physical and emotional energy, but we're very much opposed to the expenditure of spiritual energy. In middle age we drift. Leon Blois said, one step beyond mediocrity and we are saved. And the old become fixed and settled and refuse to change. And in this day when there is so much affirmation on self, we've almost turned around the words of John the Baptist. I must increase. He must decrease. I must draw attention to myself, and he must suffer the eclipse and decline. T.S. Eliot said that when everyone is running toward a precipice, he who walks in the opposite direction seems to have lost his mind. So when we fall into a pattern of ordinariness, we are loathsome to change. What has characterized our age is what might be called de-Eucharistization. A decline in the love of the Eucharist. It started when some theologians, completely misunderstanding the Vatican Council, felt that there was no such thing as the sacrament of the presence. And even cast some doubt upon the sacrifice and the value of it. And so we suffered from what the whole world is suffering from. St. Paul calls it a want of feeling. Sociologists tell us that family life and relationship between people has very much degenerated in the sense that there is a want of sensitiveness and delicacy toward one another. 
Maybe the grossness of our carnal age has made us put less stress upon those common courtesies and urbanities which make up life. Little affection is shown between husband and wife. Between mother and children, father and children. I mean a show of affection. Yes, there is the love in the in the providing for them. But the manifestation of love that has gone into decline. And it goes into decline in the spiritual order. So that we priests have become poor lovers. We are not sensitive, responsive. A husband would come into a house without speaking to the wife. We will come in to read Mass without speaking to the Lord, even for a second. We would tip our hat to a lady whom we met on the street. What are our feelings as we pass the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament? Grant this, then, we have to do something about it, something very practical. Now, there are some things that are insufficient. One liturgy is insufficient for total spirituality. Sometimes liturgy can be used as an excuse for a want of personal piety. I read Mass. That's all I have to do. One of the priests who wrote the Dutch Catechism went to Russia, met a saintly priest who suffered considerably and asked the priest to hear his confession. And this Dutch priest said that after he had confessed his sins, this holy Russian priest said, would you also like to confess that you failed to read Mass during your vacation? You forget your Lord. The, the liturgy is where all those who have a common belief and a common love meet. But our personal devotion piety is after that. Nor will it do just simply as we American bishops. We did something on the priesthood and we started with the American situation. We can't start our priesthood with the situation locally, culturally, so we finally had to drop it. We found out that statistics don't last over a year. As G.K. Chesterton said, some people use statistics as drunkards use lampposts for support rather than for illumination. And furthermore, there is always a thought that the present situation is going to endure. And therefore, if 
priests are living a certain way now, well, that's the way they will live in the next 10, 15 years. No. Just suppose we put into a computer in 1890 the number of horses that would be needed in 1977 or 80 to care for drayage, commercial, social transportation, and the like. Do you know what the computer would tell us? That by 1980 we would all be buried in 11 feet of manure. So we cannot start with the present situation or with liturgy, nor can we start with the devotions we learned in the seminary. It was easier years ago when we were not so busy to have time for the different devotions throughout the day. So we have to get back to that on which our priesthood centers and build our spiritual life around that. Now, on what does the life of a priest center? When you get home, you read chapter 5 of the Vatican Council on the Priesthood. And you will read this line. The whole spiritual life of the priest is summed up in the Eucharist, which is Christ. That is why we are priests. I'm therefore going to propose to you something concrete. And it is the daily holy hour. In the presence of the Blessed Sacrament, continuous hour, though one, one, make part of, one may make part of it before Mass and part of it afterwards, but the Mass is not included in the holy hour. You see, we say we do not have time. All right, that's good. Then time is the enemy. If that's the excuse that we have for not being spiritual, then let's seize it. And find time. Why make it? First of all, it was the only thing that our blessed Lord asked his priests to do. And that night in the garden when he poured forth his precious blood, each drop like a bead falling on the olive roots, making the first rosary of redemption, three times he came back for companionship. Fellowship. There would be some whom he could trust. That's why he picked them. And he found them asleep. Once. Twice. Three times. And this broken heart said, Can you not watch one hour with me? One hour. Now, why the hour? Here I'm not speaking of devotion. 
The holy hour is rooted in the scriptures. It belongs to no league. It belongs to no community. It's biblical. In the Gospel of John, the word hour always refers to evil. God has his day. The devil has his hour. And if you follow the word hour through the Gospel of John, you will always find that it refers to the evil of men and the evil of Satan. Our Lord began talking about it at the marriage feast of Cana when his mother asked for a miracle. My hour has not yet started. And then when Judas went out and it was night, it's always night when we leave. Our Lord said, Father, the hour has come. The hour. The hour of expiation, the hour of death. And when Judas blistered his lips with a kiss, this is your hour. All that you can do with it is turn out the lights of the world. So our Lord asked for an hour. Therefore, we will make it. We're combating evil. Believe me, the devil has been given a very long rope. We may be entering into a kind of a demonic age. No theologian writes about it. We do not talk about it. Who speaks about it? Psychiatrists and poets. One of your great Irish poets. The hours at hand. And some dark beast crouches at Bethlehem to be born. The good lack all conviction. The worst are full of passionate intensity. The psychiatrist of Rockefeller Institute has three chapters on the demonic. So, since we're priests, since we are other Christ, his ambassadors, then we'll do what he asked. We'll make the daily holy hour. The second reason for asking it is because it refers to evil, we have to make intercession. Think of how many people ask us for prayers. Now, it's not possible always for us to mention them specifically in our prayers. But we certainly, during a time such as the hour, we can make intercession for them, for our brother priests, our religious, for the church. 
Intercession is reparation. That's another word we never use today. See, there's one word that we use that makes it easy. Ministry. Ministry. What is it? Ministry. Social ministry? Liturgical ministry? Believe me, we have a deeper mission than that. We're just not ministering, we're saving, we're reconciling. So when Moses was on the, was on the mountain, Aaron and his brother down below gathered up the earrings from the women, threw the gold into the furnace. And then they began with their wild music and nudity and so forth. And Moses came down and asked about that golden calf which they were adoring. And the lamest excuse that was ever given in the history of the world was given by Aaron. He said, well, I just threw the gold into the furnace and it came out a calf. Well, Moses smashed the golden calf ground it into dust and mixed it with water and made them drink it. I wonder if they had a good case of, of the Mexican revenge. But in any case, what did Moses do then? He went back to the mountain. And he said, God, blot me out from the book of life, if you will, but save these people. That's what we're doing, saving people. So the holy hour, therefore, we make because the Lord wants it. Secondly, because we must make reparation for the church. Thirdly, because we begin to know ourselves. We do not know ourselves from our examination of conscience. How do we know that water is dirty? Because we know clean water. How do we know a dissonant note in music? Because we know harmony. How do we know we're in rags and unbecoming in dignity as priests, for example, by looking at those who are as they should be? How do we know what we are? By looking at Christ. That's how we know. That's how we know we're sinners. We look at the ideal, then we know the real. Believe me, fathers, it will change your life. You have no idea how different you will be before people in the pulpit, in your own heart, if you do it. So you will know yourself. And remember, it is not just enough to read Mass. The sacrament is distinct from the sacrifice. Now, we had breakfast. 
We had bacon and eggs. As this retreat is heard on tape later on, there will be many priests who said, Oh, I wish I had that good Irish breakfast this morning. But we had bacon and eggs. That was our sacrament. That nourished us. What was the condition of the sacrament, the sacrifice? The egg had to be broken, subjected to fire. The animal had to shed its blood. Also be subjected to fire. Then it became our sacrament. After every sacrifice, there is a sacrament. The fallacy of many churches is to try to have a sacrament without a sacrifice. It's impossible. And when we have the sacrifice, we always have something that's left over. We use it for hospitality. We take care of visitors with what has been sacrificed. And the Lord, too, has his sacrament. Very much like marriage. The marriage act of husband and wife is a kind of a sacrifice because the lover dies to himself and submits to the beloved. The beloved dies to herself, submits to the lover. And out of that mutual death there comes the ecstasy of love. That is the sacrifice. Now, do a husband and wife have only a love that is manifested in that sacrificial act? Are there not any courtesies of companionship which would even surpass in the quiet silence the ecstasy of two-in-one flesh? Even moments of silence, as Maeterlinck said, a friend is one in whose presence you can keep silence. And as a matter of fact, their happiness, one with another, depends upon the deep consciousness that each one is a sacrament to the other. So our Lord has a sacrament. He is really and truly present, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Holy Eucharist. And if we know how to love, we become sensitive and responsive. And when we come in to visit him, he will talk to us. We take on his likeness as Moses' face did shine because he was with God. So too, St. Paul tells us that we grow in splendor because we are in a presence of God. A splendor that grew as he returned again to the mountain. and the splendor that grows in us 
because we return to him. We reflect, says St. Paul, as in the mirror, the splendor of the Lord. And thus we are transfigured into his likeness. From splendor to splendor. That is what the Eucharist does. Do not tell me this is a good retreat. I'm beyond praise, beyond blame. After years in the priesthood, this retreat is a dismal failure if you do not make a holy hour. The only reason that I ever came. And I'm speaking as one of his ambassadors. And when John and Andrew found our Lord, they said, where do you live? Where do you live? Our Lord said, come and see. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program. Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Well, my good friends, I want to thank you once again for joining me for this hour of reflection from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen here on Radio Maria Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. And I do ask you to invite a friend next week. And so... um, Again, let us share the love with the world. And Archbishop Sheen's messages are timeless. And uh, even though many of these addresses were given 50, 60, 70 years ago, they're still relevant today. And so we are blessed. And speaking of blessings, I'd like to share with you, of course, one of my favorite Bible passages. And it comes from the Book of Numbers. And so, everyone, until next time, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. Yeah.
have been listening to Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.